Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and as always, I'm joined by Adam Grossman. Yeah, this is an exciting week on the show for, for someone who focuses on technology, such as myself. As Adam has an interview with, with John Costner. John is a bit of an internet pioneer and has also worked with some really interesting sports technology companies. Adam, can you give us some background into those technology companies and all the things that, that John has done? Uh, absolutely. Uh, John is the president of Costner Media, digital media, sport, uh, digital media and sports consultancy. As, as you mentioned, in 2018, John and the late NBA commissioner emeritus David Stern created Micromanager Ventures, a portfolio of sports technology startups focused on media, betting, and player health. John continues to serve as the advisor to an investor in 15 companies in Micromanagement Ventures. He's also a popular moderator and panelist at industry events and webinars, including one where he moderated a panel that I was on recently with Sport Techie. Before both his own consulting group and, and the venture fund, John had a variety of roles in, in sports media, with stints at Sports Illustrated, the NBA, CBS, NBC Sports, and many fans will recognize the work that John did in, in his long tenure at ESPN. In his 21 years at, at the company, John led digital media from 2003 to 2017. He built an ESPN into the into the world's leading digital sports destination, increasing traffic tenfold and turning an unprofitable business into ESPN's fastest growing one. Cosner and his team helped revolutionize the sports experience with ESPN.com, the ESPN app, fantasy sports, streaming, including the development of ESPN3, podcasting with pod center subscription services with Insider, now ESPN+. He was also responsible for recruiting and retaining and developing exceptional sports writing, ta- exceptional sports writing talent, including Wright Thompson, Bill Simmons, Zach Lowe, Ramona Shelburne, Bill Barnwell, um, and Samit Ball, as well as specialists like Adrian Wojnarowski, Matthew Berry, Henry Abbott, um, and Darren Ravel. You know, that list of, of talent has had an enormous impact on the sports media, media landscape and in truth is responsible for the ma- majority of my sports media consumption. So everyone, please enjoy Adam's interview with John Kostner. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement podcast. Uh, excited to be with you. Excited for our guest today. Uh, it's John Kostner. Uh, John is a very well-seasoned executive, particularly when it comes to sports media, sports technology. We're going to get into all of that in more detail. But John, uh, why don't you give a little bit of background of, about yourself? You know, we'll have a full intro in the beginning of the podcast, but it'd be great to learn a little bit about you and for the students to learn a little bit about you as well. Great. Thank you, uh, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, Greetings to all of you at Northwestern. So I'm one of the few people you'll ever meet who has gotten to do the jobs he dreamed of doing as a kid. I grew up in New York City during the 1960s and 70s, and I was obsessed with sports on television. We didn't travel much then, but sports television took me everywhere. I learned geography, math, storytelling, and character through watching sports on TV. I was mesmerized. One of the first sporting events I watched was the 1971 Rose Bowl when Jim Plunkett led Stanford University to an upset of number two Ohio State. From then on, I wanted to go to Stanford, but of course I thought it was in Pasadena. (laughs) 
as much as I love sports TV, I always dreamed for more. I wanted a product that could combine live sporting events with a print narrative, photography, video highlights, and real-time stats and scores. ESPN.com, which is the product that I am most associated with, did not exist when I was growing up. It did not exist when I actually got to attend Stanford University. It didn't exist when I started my career. And it didn't exist even when I was halfway through my career. So I think there are two lessons for everyone who's listening. First, the pace of change now is only accelerating, much more profound than when I started my career. So if you haven't found your calling yet, I wouldn't worry. It's quite likely it hasn't been created yet. And second, follow your passion. As Steve Jobs said at his commencement address at Stanford on June 12, 2005, your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. After I graduated from Stanford, I got my first job in programming, and that's TV programming, at CBS Sports in New York City. Then I was in charge of broadcasting for the National Basketball Association during the Dream Team era. For all of you who watched The Last Dance, the great um, documentary on ESPN, I was there for most of that. From there, I went to Sports Illustrated and then to ESPN for over 20 years, where for the last 15, I was in charge of ESPN.com, ESPN app, fantasy sports, podcasting, and streaming. It was truly a dream job. I left ESPN in June of 17, and I reunited with my former boss, the NBA Commissioner Emeritus David Stern, and we created a portfolio of sports tech startups, which we named Micromanagement Ventures. As you know, David suffered a brain hemorrhage last December, and he died on New Year's Day. It was a very sad start to what continues to be a rugged year for all of us and certainly for sports. With David gone, my work with our sports startups continue, and I still love what I do. As I said, that's the most important thing in careers. So thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Yeah, and that's a great introduction. I think what to start out with, you know, I think we want to potentially separate the, what you're doing now, particularly on the investment and micromanagement uh, uh, side, to uh, when you started your career, particularly in the sports media and sports tech side. So from your perspective, uh, and the first, we'll call it your first part of your career, although it's definitely a long and distinguished career, what, uh, what would you say is your most um, rewarding or most successful professional accomplishment? Um, I think, um, I think the most successful accomplishment was just being able to lead super talented teams and over a long career. And we had a lot of success. There's, there are interesting things that flowed from that. I had, um, I had one experience I was going to share, uh, which sort of, you know, sort of capsulates how everything came together. And this is when I was at ESPN.com. So, Back in October 2009, representatives from Apple came to Bristol, Connecticut to visit us at ESPN. One of them was their head of internet services, Eddie Q, who it turns out is a big sports fan, unlike his boss at the time, Steve Jobs. Eddie found out what I did at ESPN.com and he came over to me and he said, hi, I'm Eddie. Your scores, they suck. 
He then took out his second generation iPhone. Remember, this is 2009. And he showed me his home screen. Top left on his home screen was Yahoo Sports, our number one competitor. That's where I get my scores, he, he told me. So I said, well, you know how to get my attention. Message received. I got out of the meeting and I called the head of ESPN Stats and Information. His name was Ed Macedo. So I said, hey, Ed, I just spoke to Eddie at Apple. He says our scores suck. Ed Macedo said, I use Sportsline for scores. So I was now headed somewhere to DEFCON 4 because <laughs> the head of all ESPN statistics even wasn't, you know, he, even he wasn't using our site for scores. And I felt that was a big problem. I called a staff meeting. I said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new priority, scores. And everybody looked at me like I was a Luddite. We already do scores. I said, yes, but not well enough. Eddie from Apple says our scores suck. And, um, you know, there, there, there are relatively few times in my career that I literally took control of our entire roadmap and changed everything. But this was one of them. Because here's what I knew. If you looked at our metrics, and this will be a theme for what we talk about, the vast majority of our traffic was coming from automated content scores, stats, schedules, even though we generated most of the attention in those days for the terrific content we had, including writers like Bill Simmons and others. I told the group scores were a portal, a starting point. If we did them right, there were reason to come to ESPN.com every day. If you looked at our scores, you were likely to get our recaps, watch our highlights, um, get further into our site. Another key metric that I've always been focused on uh, was daily active users, DAUs, and I thought that was a key metric of our health. So I've always been excited about the intersection of sports media and technology, and I've been blessed to work with similarly bright, driven, and collaborative people who have shared my passion. My favorite thing about my work experience has been coming to the office with a new idea, gathering a group of people from different backgrounds who are similarly motivated and truth tellers, and emerging with an even better idea. So to this day, that process never gets old. In the case of scores, our team embraced the challenge of improving the scores. One of the ideas was to run high-speed lines from Bristol to every major pro and college scoreboard. Another was to pioneer technology to show you the score changing and the clock ticking down right in the web page. We very carefully tracked our progress and we reduced latency getting the scores up and publishing them to their fans, to our fans. The cheeky thing that I did was I sent all of our internal reports off to Eddie Q at Apple. By the spring of 2011, about a year and a half later, a little less, we were unquestionably the best and fastest at scores. In those days, Apple took out full-page print ads in the major newspapers. The ads depicted the home screen of a typical iPhone. So they had apps like Netflix and New York Times and Open Table. And in June 2011, right around the time of their Worldwide Developers Conference, their latest ad came out. And top left was Score Center, the new scores app from ESPN. And it wasn't a coincidence. Interesting follow-up there was that when we made that change, traffic and usage for ESPN actually took off. The premise that building around something that most mattered to our fans was going to be critical actually paid off. Um, 
But I love the serendipity of having the meeting, of being open to the input, challenging ourselves to change. And we would do something like that twice more around getting to number one in fantasy football and then getting to number one for, for a best product on a mobile phone, both of which were profound changes in our operation and things that we did. So just an example of, um, you know, what really made the job fun and rewarding and um, I think contributed to our sort of ongoing success there. Yeah, I, I, there's a, several things that came up that I'd like to delve into. Um, one of the things are, are tied into the class and, and one, of the, one of the concepts we talk about in our class is the platform alignment test, which is how do people use the technology uh, how do they use it across multiple different devices or multiple different platforms? And then what are the metrics that are associated with all of those platforms? You've touched on, uh, you know, one of the questions we were going to talk about, which is uh, how did you use data and how to use metrics in, you know, in your day-to-day -day operations, either on the venture side or when you were at uh, ESPN or Sports Illustrated. So um, I, let's dive into that in a little bit more detail. So, you know, how were you looking at metrics, particularly, you know, in, in, you had a lot of success uh, publishing articles in Sports Business Journal articulating the change in technology. So one, how are you using metrics, like you're talking about, whether it's daily active users on a day-to-day -day basis, but two, how are you using metrics and data to evaluate change from a technology platform perspective? So another Chicagoan uh, who I admire besides you, Adam, is <laughs> Rashad Tabakawala, who's a longtime and influential marketing advertising executive at Publicis. He has a brand new book out, which I recommend, which is called Restoring the Soul of Business. In it, he talks about the importance of the spreadsheet and the story. To best understand and utilize metrics, you need people too. And that's people who will tell you the truth, straight talk, people who come from diverse backgrounds and represent a variety of opinions. In business, and this, was, this has always been true, it's true in the work I do today before, we don't know what we don't know. So the only way to protect ourselves and our company is to keep counsel with people who think differently than we do. Because together we can understand things that individually we don't. For instance, I believe that a well done PowerPoint can sell almost anything to anybody. However, the brightest people can always find that one thread that one detail within the PowerPoint that causes the whole premise to, to unravel. You need those people. Um, you need to start with data, but you constantly have to be challenging your assumptions and recalibrating what's going on versus the times. I always talked about how do we solve today's problems as we would today, not as we have in the past, because in big companies you always hear, yeah, we tried that, it didn't work. But Timing is everything in business and metrics help, help make that apparent. I talked about mobile, for instance. We used to have these, um, we used to have these um, town hall meetings at ESPN. And for much of my time there, they were like love fests because the business was good and growing really quickly. And we had a research guy who I think is still at ESPN named Dave Coletti. And Dave would get up and he'd say, you know, on the desktop, we have X amount of traffic and we're 80% in front of everybody else, blah, blah, blah. And he's go on and on and everyone would sort of exult in how terrific the numbers appear to be. One day he said, and on mobile, we, we're leading Bleacher Report by 5%. So I said, pause, <laughs> please repeat that and, and talk about what you mean. And what what he laid out was that in the nascent, you know, all of a sudden, 
mobile web and apps had begun to proliferate. And although we were dominant on desktop computers, it was a dogfight on mobile. And Bleach Report, which subsequently was purchased by, uh, by Turner, had really come on strong just focusing on that experience. So I looked around and I said, okay, how many of you guys have smartphones? Everybody raised their hands. So I said, well, that's where the game is going to be won in sports, no matter, no matter uh, the decision that we make in terms of how good we want to be on desktop. And that day, we wound up changing direction, committing the preponderance of our engineering talent to creating the best experience on a mobile device, specifically a phone. And this wound up being difficult and controversial at the time because most of the business was on the desktop. So there was lots of desire for innovation, which I sort of denuded by driving us to, to focus on the mobile phone. Um, and this is another case where timing is everything. There was a lot of unhappiness about that direction. However, today, 80 to 85% of the traffic for ESPN is on a mobile device, specifically the phone. Had we not made that move, we would have been passed by Bleach Report and many others. So you have to be willing to make changes and metrics, and metrics frequently tell you where you have to go and why. Um, I talked about I talked about DAUs, you know, traditionally publishers focused on MAUs, monthly active, active uniques. And we had tons of monthly active uniques and people love that number. And it's, and it said far away, we we're number one, but it was a superficial metric to a passion audience. And that's why I challenged us to really focus on, on DAUs uh, at that time. Metrics continue to evolve and, no business operates without them. I just want to come back to the point that Rashad makes, which is they're only as good as the thinking behind them. And in any company, they're only as good as people's ability to really think them through and challenge the assumptions. You can have metrics, but if your people don't believe they are the right ones or don't believe they capture what's important, you won't succeed. And you can wind up having, you know, the tyranny of unintended consequences if you focus if you focus on the on the wrong things. He has this anecdote in his book about how one company is obsessed with lowering the time, you know, you know, lowering the time on customer service calls because they think that 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 is is equivalent to to easing frustration at being held on hold, etc. But what happens is that in, the, in terms of this company, people get frustrated about what they think is the gruff treatment during the customer service calls. So I think, I think uh, customer satisfaction, for instance, is a, is a much more important metric in general than just sort of, um, sort of getting more efficient in terms of the time that you devote to customer service. That, that's only one example. Yeah, and this is a really good point. And one of the other one other topic we talk about in the context of the class in the book is that if you're looking to enter this in the sports industry, that everybody basically becomes like a chief, uh, a CTO, a chief technology officer, where they have to evaluate new technologies and leverage data and metrics. And you bring up a good point, and one I want to uh, ask you about is how do you think you know both from your, your past roles in sports media and digital media, and now in your venture side. How do you think of strategy, metrics, and technology working together? How, how are you evaluating um, 
you know, particularly as platforms change and you've articulated changes in, um, you know, artificial, uh, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, how, how are you applying a strategic frame or what are you looking for from a strategic frame perspective um, when evaluating those technologies? I, you know, I, I, I think if I'm an idiot savant on anything, it's like I can look two years ahead, and, and at least from the frame of sports and media and technology, I can tell you what I see. And that's really driven me the whole time. I was thinking about just, and again, I think this is valuable to think about for careers. I was always someone who was focused on trying to accelerate things. When I first got started, when I first got started, we were lucky to have an electric typewriter at our desks at CBS. And I invested in buying the exact same typewriter for my apartment so that I could show up at work with the reports already done. Um, when I started off, when I started off, people would frequently handwrite, handwrite memos and give them to their secretaries to type and distribute. So instead, I taught myself to type. So I would, so I didn't have the step of having to try to find, <laughs> try to find a secretary who might help me. But again, it was focused on accelerating things. I, um, I was the first person at ESPN to get a BlackBerry because BlackBerry represented a way to, to move quicker uh, in terms of email communication. At the NBA, I was one of the first people to get a whole computer set up at home with a fax line so that I could get the I could get the schedules for the NBA playoffs out to teams right after games ended rather than at 8 a.m. the first, the next morning when I came to work. So I'm always thinking about ways that you can accelerate what you understand and um, and what you know. When I look at our successful when I look at our successful startups they tend to be lean operations that give them more time to extend the money on hand to more months. They're very, they're very, they're very customer centric. Um, it, they spend a lot of times trying to understand both the value that they bring and what their customers want from them. And, you know, as I say, what's the concentric circle of self-interest that, that connects that connects those two things. Um, the uh, you know the word pivot has been has become such a cliche in our industry, but almost all of them have had to find other things to do based upon actual usage. Um, one of the things I just feel is just so effective all the time is just getting feedback from your customers. When I took over as the director of broadcasting at the uh, at the NBA in 87, one of the first things I did was to call, and in, in those days there were 23 NBA teams. I called the director of broadcasting at every team, and I said, I'm so-and-so, I'm from the league office, you probably don't know me from Adam, this is my job. Tell me, tell me like what your relationship has been with the league office, things that we could do to help. And 23 of these conversations generated five or six consistent points that were needs or points of pain or whatever. And I set upon solving those. Those bought me goodwill and enabled me then to begin to do the innovations and other things that I wanted to do. But it was a two-way street. Um, and that exists with customers. 
One of my favorite of our team of our little companies is WSC. WSC is an Israeli-based company that is revolutionizing sports video highlights using computer vision and machine learning, different forms of artificial intelligence. So for instance, at ESPN, the way we would do video highlights was a combination of automation and personnel. You'd have, you'd have an army of people uh, viewing games using a software tool, and they would mark the ins and outs um, uh, for different events within a, within a game or match. When the players leave the locker room, when they arrive on the court, the first basket, halftime, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the combination of the ins and outs created highlight packages, which you saw on SportsCenter and the ESPN app. Um, WSC does all of that, but they just use software. So their software analyzes video of a game and, can, and, and it's smart. So it, it can analyze game one of the NBA finals and it can tell, it knows who Kawhi Leonard is. It knows who Kevin Durant is. It can, you know, you can request the best plays for those two guys in the fourth quarter. And within a minute, it can spit out that highlight. It can put a cover slate on it. It can cut the highlight simultaneously in landscape and portrait, enabling you to offer it both to Instagram and Snapchat and to Google at the same time in their preferred formats. And it's revolutionizing the whole business. But what makes what they do better and better is they're a global company constantly getting feedback from their customers and being able to target and move on that. Um, another one of our companies, Whoop, which, um, which makes a wearable that tracks, tracks sleep, health, and wellness and is favored by some of the top PGA Tour professionals like Rory, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, um, they, they were selling hardware and it was an okay business. And their research told them that they should flip it to a subscription service. And once they did that, everything took off. But it was studying what other companies are doing and then looking at the metrics of success once they made the flip that transformed their company. So these things are always a combination of metrics and people, and you have to always try to stay current with, um, with what's going on and why. Last anecdote I'll tell is I was, listening to a, um, I was listening to a webinar with Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, is a brilliant guy, great service. And he was talking about the rationale of some of the big podcasting acquisitions that they've made. They recently, they just did a deal this week for $100 million with Joe Rogan. They purchased The Ringer, which is Bill Simmons, former ESPNer, uh, and, and they made some other moves. And he talked about the importance of having sort of anchor personalities that you're going to come and check out every day. And automatically, in my mind, it's, okay, I can't wait to see what the metrics look upon on that, how they're assessing that, how they're thinking about that, because that's going to determine whether that strategy is successful, where they go from it, all these different things. And the devil is in the details. The best of these companies rolling out, and I think, I think about Netflix, I think about Spotify, I think about Amazon, it's just attention to detail and specifically around personalization, which is probably an overarching theme for what's coming, I think. Yeah, actually, personalization is the next question I was going to ask, particularly 
you know, one of the questions we want to discuss is what are trends that you're seeing emerging? You know, obviously you're, you're looking at that from a venture perspective, but content personalization, obviously the MBA recently announced a new deal with Microsoft. Your the companies you're investing in have a lot of content personalization and, and personal health components, which you've already talked about. But um, how do you see content personalization and how do you see the evolution of that uh, in the sports industry, and and do you see that as a driving factor in the future of sports media and uh, sports consumption? I I see it as a driving force, uh, as a driving force just in general. Sports certainly impacted, and it's interesting when you when you had a big job and you don't do it anymore. You wake up some mornings and you you, you know you're thinking about a product you create, except it's not your job anymore. So <laughs> on that same call, Daniel Eck was talking about. They're, they're, they're going to use their algorithm personalization to give you a handful of links on your home screen on Spotify, which indicates stuff you, that you like, things that they think that you'd be interested in, this whole sort of recommendation engine um, around content is pretty profound. It's, you know, I like Fauda on Netflix, so they'll then recommend a bunch of other shows. That, that hasn't really come to sports in a meaningful way, but it will. Um, one other thing um, which is related is just the impact, at least in sports, of esports and gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it pretty clearly now with sports being unable to play. Esports is gaining an interest; they can play. And when you think about when you think about esports or gaming, there's a whole revolution that's taking place in media that's impacting sports. And basically, basically. That's the idea that that there's 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 an ever expanding, practically infinite supply of interesting content available for audiences under thirty today for free. And I'm talking about it, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Snap, Twitter, just to name six. Radically different from uh, from from when I was starting my career, and. For many people, it isn't just watching things. It's also the ability to play games and to play games anytime, anywhere. And the collective impact of that is diminishing traditional pay television. You know, in the first quarter of the year, Netflix gained 16 million subs, 2 million people cut the cord. The loss of pay television or the diminishment of it goes right to the heart of sports. It's the center of the sports ecosystem. So, what you're going to see following is going to be different and sports is going to have to work harder collectively to generate the same kind of value because there's just less money. There's less money in the system. Artificial intelligence sort of represents the way that we take all these metrics and actually put them into play in creating a set of services for everybody. But I fully expect when fans are able to come back to sports, which I think is going to be a while, um, you know, you're going to be able to order order food from your seat. It's going to be delivered to you because they're not going to want you in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big beneficiary here is going to be betting. Uh, um, look for look for the acceleration of of legalized betting in more states. Look for the acceleration of mobile betting, not just within physical casinos, but just mobile betting in general. Similar to what you see in New Jersey, that's going to accelerate. Uh, some of the most valuable companies are going to be those that can identify likely betters and then network them to to 
FanDuel or DraftKings or William Hill or whomever where they can become a paid customer. These things are all going to begun, begin to, to, to come together in some sort of profile of interest for, for leagues and sports. Yeah, and I, I, I want to follow up on, uh, I should have followed up before, but on the podcast element, like you said, you had talked about Bill Simmons and being there at the beginning, particularly from an ESPN, um, you know, digital side from the ESPN.com perspective. Um, I know this is a very broad question, but, you know, from a podcasting audio perspective, you know, that's really taken off recently. And you mentioned Joe Rogan's new, uh, new deal with Spotify. From your perspective, what are you surprised? Are you, does this follow kind of what you're looking at from a podcast perspective? Are you surprised at the success or does this fall within the kind of personalized content on demand? It, fall, it falls within personalized content. I'm, I'm a little surprised. Again, it gets to timing. I'm a little surprised it hasn't become a bigger business sooner. One of the things that, that Spotify is going to do, which I think is super smart and will begin to accelerate the business is they're going to begin to insert advertising every time you listen to a specific podcast. So, you know, if, if the equivalent, you know, when we talked about DAUs versus MAUs in podcasting, one of the superficial things is downloads. Well, it's a huge podcast, a huge download, but a download doesn't mean that someone's actually listening. What Spotify is going to do is, is, and it's all streaming is put ads into the podcast when you listen to them. That will enable them to know exactly who's listening. Those numbers initially are going to be much smaller than, um, than, um, than the download number, but they represent certainty. And that's going to help create an audience. You're eventually going to get into more automated programmatic solutions around that. I think it's going to be big for podcasting. I happen to love podcasting because of the variety. I happen to love podcasting because... When you hear people make the same points they might make in print, the way they express them just tells you, tells you much more about what's actually going on. There's real, there's life that's lived. There's a conversation. It's not superficial. It's great. There's a, there's another, um, this is another Chicagoan, but, um, there's a, um, there's a, a, a podcast I love called Hacks on Tap. Which is uh, which is Mike Murphy and uh, and uh, David uh, uh, the uh, the former uh, former campaign manager for for Barack Obama. David, um, yeah. David. Uh, yeah. No, no, it's not. It's um, or David Axelrod. David Axelrod. I apologize. The Axelrod yeah, guy. Uh, it's it, it's one. It's 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 a wonderful. It's a wonderful podcast. It's sort of like Inside Baseball. Yeah about political campaigns with David who ran Obama's campaign and um, Mike Murphy who ran among others of uh, uh, John McCain's campaign. They're old friends. It's, 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 it's great information. It's really hilarious. It's just, it just represents a good, a good use of time. So I think that format is taking off. I read with interest that Spotify is going to do video versions of the Joe Rogan podcast, which I think is smart. Um, I think sky's the limit with that, but the virtually unlimited supply is going to lend itself to aggregation and personalization. And it may well be that individuals, whether say it's Bill Simmons or Matthew Berry or Joe Rogan, they may not have quite the size of actual audience 
that they thought they had if you just looked at downloads, but I think that audience will be more important and more lucrative. It's one of my favorite things, podcasts. Absolutely. And um, just wanted to bring up another point that you brought up earlier um, about, you know, and you kind of mentioned this in the context of Eddie Q and, and Bill Simmons and David Stern, but it's cultivating relationships and how you're using technology to cultivate relationships. You're talking about it, even in the context of, you know, uh, David Axelrod and, and Mike Murphy, but, um, and you've mentioned this before about the people side, but how, how, how have you just personally cultivated relationships in, in terms of uh, progressing your career in the industry? And then also what role did technology play in your, your, your kind of focus on technology play in cultivating those relationships? So it's a cliche, but I just, I believe these things are all about people and all about relationships. And the most important thing is creating trusting relationships. And I think taking the long view and the long view is that you're trying to help people, you're trying to get smarter, and you don't do it with a quid pro quo in mind. So most people who deal with me, I think most people would say, yes, smart, smart person, generous with his time, uh, whatever. But the more people that you create relationships with in a positive way is fantastic for careers because these people go other places. So I take pride in having what I think is among the best networks going, again, within this prism of sports and media and technology. With our startups, David Stern was, you know, the celebrity. He was the giant on the cap table. He's a father figure to a lot of these young entrepreneurs. But I was doing most of the day-to-day work. And in many ways, my own network was more current than David's. And because I try to cultivate relationships at all areas within organizations, it was more useful. As you know, like when you try to make a deal with a company and you get introduced at the top, that will get you a meeting, but, but it's very difficult to get a deal because typically deals happen in middle management. And again, people have to be motivated. What is in it for them? So I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, since the coronavirus started, and it began to sink into me what was going on. And my own point of view is we're relatively early in this. Unfortunately, it's going to be a while. So I, you know, I went from somebody who had done a handful of Zoom calls to doing a handful of Zoom calls every day. And I literally scheduled my day and I talked to a variety of people. And I, I do it consciously because I like to see people instead of just, just, just sitting in my office. Every single Zoom call teaches me something, connects different pieces, enables me to deliver some form of value. And I, and I feel that's very important for people and it's free. Creating a presence for yourself that makes sense on LinkedIn is also, is also smart and effective. In my case, and for many people in media and business, Twitter is very effective, both in terms of getting, getting messages out and also as, as sort of headline service. But Enabling the technology to work for you is really critical. When I left, uh, when I left ESPN and I decided to work independently, one of my focuses was how could I sort of develop global relationships? Because what I knew and what I was interested in, I thought had value well beyond just the U.S. Technology enables you to do that in a variety of ways, whether it's presence on different applications or just understanding what people are looking for. So I think the, the 
the relationships we forge, what they're based upon is really, really critical to, to one's success and the growth of careers. Yeah. And a few more, a couple more questions. And then, you know, I know you're busy guys, so we'll get you out of here, but, uh, you talked about the coronavirus and the impact of the coronavirus. That's one of the questions. Obviously, it's having a huge impact on the sports and media and entertainment landscape. So what's your, uh, how do you think it's impacting it both in the near term and what kind of long-term implications do you think could occur or be happen because of the coronavirus? I wrote down this quote from Jason Gay in the Wall Street Journal, which I love, which is he says, the pandemic shutdown is nothing less than the most seismic disruption in the history of sports. The economic impact of what's happening now will be vast. By the way, ESPN estimates this year $12 billion and double that if college and pro football are impacted. The way games at every level will be played and viewed is likely to change forever. Every athlete on earth will remember this time for the rest of their lives. I think that's pretty good and sums it up. And I said, unfortunately, I think we're still early in the process with this virus. And in the absence of any national plan, sports are going to struggle to come back and to operate normally. While I'm an optimistic person, I believe this is going to take a while and that things are going to be considerably different on the other side. Typically, a cataclysm like this tends to accelerate changes already in development. And I talked about you know, decline of pay television, development of esports and gaming, movement of advertising to programmatic and platforms you know you already saw that the major advertisers you know sort of decommitted from the tr traditional tv upfront process i don't think that's ever going back maybe there'll be some sort of entertainment tv season i don't know but until there is a vaccine or a medical solution for the virus it's going to be very difficult to stage games with fans and that impacts every aspect of sports negatively uh, last week, last week there was reports about the 69-page, the 69-page um, document that that baseball generated to share with the players just the different issues with coming back and getting started. And this had nothing to do with the collective bargaining issues of like how they share revenue. But to me, the 69 pages were the tell. If if it's that complicated and that difficult. You know, it just is it's, it's, it's really hard. A friend of mine at one of the leagues says, it's like the sands shifting under your feet 24-7. Just, just, just always, always constant changing. So many different issues. So much concern about health and testing. And this is where, again, in the absence of a national plan, in the absence of some agreed-upon testing protocol, very, very, very difficult for sports. Um, I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about sort of broadcast solutions for fanless games, because to me, if the Seahawks go into Green Bay to play the Packers and nobody's in the stands at Lambeau Field, it's not the same. You know, the, re the ratings for WWE wrestling are way down because it's not fun to watch the matches without anybody in the stands. So profound changes are 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 coming. And I think, unfortunately, we're stuck in this for a while. So you're going to see different things. Yeah. And I think that's a, um, a good point in terms of one of the things that people are saying is like, well, people are starved for sports and media and entertainment content, but just simply a coming back is not necessarily going to be a long-term success plan, right? It, there might be a spike in the initial viewing, but that might be more difficult long-term. Um, 
And, you know, speaking of challenging environments, one of the questions we wanted to discuss was, you know, a challenge that you face personally, obviously in, in your career, obviously coronavirus is a big challenge that everybody's facing, but uh, one of the, you know, what are some of the challenges that you faced? And if you, you know, we, we've talked a lot about David Stern, but one of the things that David Stern mentioned is maybe one of your most difficult challenges is the time at Sports Illustrated, which he called uh, uh, what you were trying to do. At An abject. abject disaster. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that could be one or if there are other challenges you wanted to talk about, I'll take you through. Um, I'll take you through one other, which I think is revealing of things that go on, and hopefully has like some some constructive point for people listening. I took over ESPN.com in 2003, and I was a rising star at ESPN for my first five years running the site. Again, we had a terrific team, we had good esprit de corps, and we were operating slightly under the radar in in what was still considered a television company. But then came the Great Recession in 2008-2009, you know, the the last big cataclysm before the coronavirus. And and I remember we had an annual meeting that was called the profitability meeting. I used to joke that that was euphemistic name for what this meeting was, but that year the joke was on me. Between, you know, with 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 the subprime mortgage bust between advertising and affiliate sales, estimates for my business were cut by $100 million annually. Okay, right. when you looked ahead, they took $100 million out of the five-year plan. We could have a whole separate discussion about why five-year plans are so silly and how, and how <laughs> much time is taken. But nonetheless, um, once that happened, instead of being a star, I was now kind of a dunce. And it became an open question whether or not I would be replaced at, at my position. And I took stock at that time. This is 08, 09, because I loved my job. I didn't feel I was done with it. I was determined that I was going to fight to keep my position. A friend of mine told me a story, and it's probably apocryphal, but I loved it. Evidently, at Intel, legendary leaders Andy Grove and Craig Barrett faced a similar rough patch in their careers. And there were rumors that they were going to be replaced. So the conversation they had was something like, well, what is so-and-so going to do differently? And they answered that question. They said, well, why don't we do that ourselves? (laughs) And the rest is history. So I undertook to do the same exercise. If I got replaced tomorrow in my job running ESPN.com and they brought in a new leader, what would he or she do? And when I asked myself that question, the answers were kind of shocking. And all of a sudden, I began to see clearly the things that I wasn't doing and needed to do. And without being asked or forced to do it, I embarked myself on making a bunch of changes. Uh, We made personnel changes. We made changes in our roadmap. We shut things down. We focused on other things. And that proved very effective. And Soon, the, um, the economy began to come back, streaming media became a big thing, and we resumed our growth trajectory. And I then spent another, you know, I, I spent another, practically another decade at the company, and we had a lot of success. But my point is, you know, the, the introspection that was necessary when you hit a crisis and being, being both honest with yourself and willing to make changes and willing to make changes before those are asked can be, can be really, really critical. So 
that's one that was really difficult period of time that ended well. I had others that didn't end well, but that's, that's hopefully something that everybody can think about. Uh, because again, when I asked myself the question, I got, I got answers that I wasn't expecting. And, and that goes into our last question, which is, you know, what are recommendations? You, that this is obviously an educational podcast. It's reaching a, a sports student who are trying to enter the sports business or become more successful in the sports business. We've talked a lot about different things that could be helpful, but uh, what would you recommend or are there any additional things you'd recommend for people who are trying to enter or progress in the sports industry? So I, I would say three things, and I like to focus on the interview process because that's the one thing that students have some control over. So three things, okay? Thinking about, thinking about you know, your interview and that's whether it's in person or today, whether it's on Zoom. First, be on time. It's the most elemental thing, but being punctual shows respect for whomever is going to hire you. First impressions matter. Second, be prepared. What's the one advantage you have over those looking to hire you? And that's that you have time. And with that time, you should be researching the company, the person you're speaking with. Google them. Check out their LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook feeds. Find their speeches on YouTube, their presentations. Come with good questions. And remember, the more you get the interviewer to talk about themselves, the more they will like you. Yep. And finally, be heard. Give thoughtful answers that reflect who you are and the brain power and talent that you'll bring to any assignment. Make them remember you. I think that's a great way to... Uh, and the podcast. Make sure that people remember what John just said. Uh, John, I want to thank you uh, for thank you for joining the podcast today. Uh, this was really great. Um, we really appreciate you making the time. And, and thanks again for all your insights and your background and all the recommendations you're providing for our, our audience, and in particular for the students. And thank you, Adam. Thanks to Northwestern and uh, continued success with Block Six Analytics and everything you're doing. And stay well. You too. Stay well. Uh, thanks, Jeff.